0: In our world, there is magic in the darkness. Sorcery and incantations which bring us closer to the essence of the night. Come enter our black magic shop. Where we will conjure up tales to frighten and disturb. This journey will be spellbinding. Welcome, visitors, to the No Sleep Magic Shop. I'm your proprietor, David Cummings. This week, we conjure spells for you about drawing forth the hidden entities from the darkness. Welcome to the 14th season of the No Sleep Podcast. It's wonderful to be back. But, of course, we weren't actually gone at all. Thanks to the stellar work of Olivia White and Jessica McAvoy, we were able to share The New Decade with you. A huge dollop of thanks to those ladies and the entire No Sleep team for making that series so wonderfully creepy. We appreciate all your positive comments about it. And for our European fans, we can't thank you enough for coming out to the Euro 2020 live shows. It was so wonderful to see the support of our fans from across the pond. You made us feel so loved. It was an amazing experience, so on behalf of the live team, we thank you for making it so special. And so, a new season is upon us. We have a great new theme composed by the maestro Brandon Boone and wonderfully produced by Phil Mykolski. And we're all excited to cast our spells upon you. Now, close your eyes and embrace the magic. In our first tale, we discover a long-lost episode of a podcast. Not our podcast, of course. But here, we meet a woman whose sister ran a local history podcast. Unlikely to feature any cursed content, you'd assume. But in this tale, shared with us by author Charlotte Leadville, we find out that even mundane small-town lore can hold sinister secrets. Performing this tale are Jessica McAvoy... Addison Peacock, Dan Zapula, Erica Sanderson, Aaron Lillis, and Mary Murphy. So don't worry about the missing guests. There's bound to be a rational explanation. These are all totally normal occurrences when you're investigating the mystery of the Soundside Hotel.
1: My sister used to have a history podcast in her mid-twenties. She gave it up to go the family way, or so she said. In truth, it wasn't a very successful show. It was a show about interesting historical places in North Carolina, so by nature, it didn't really appeal to many people outside of our community. And I'll never tell her this, but the show was kind of bland. The thing is, I think she may have had a completely different reason for quitting the show. One that didn't have to do with her having kids or how completely boring it was. So I inherited my sister's old laptop when I started college last fall. We're not a wealthy family. So when my parents learned my sister's old MacBook was still kicking around and she was willing to give it to me, they saw no reason to get me my own. I was cleaning all of her old files off of the computer. She told me she had everything she wanted backed up and I could just delete everything. I found an audio file for an episode of her podcast I'd never heard. Even though I found her show boring, I listened to all of it to be supportive. But this appeared to be an unreleased Halloween special. It was the last episode she ever recorded, and it never aired. I thought it was strange she'd never mentioned this episode, She always talked to me about what she was working on. I listened to it, thinking that she would have deleted anything she wanted to keep private. After all, it was my computer now, and anything on there was fair game, right? I don't regret listening to it, but the recording is very strange, and you'll see why. No one in the recording seems to be aware of any of the strange sounds. They just keep talking like nothing is happening. My sister ended up getting married to Jack, the man you'll hear in the recording. Both of them maintained that they never heard anything strange when they listened to the audio. When I pressed them, my sister asked why I didn't just delete it if it bothered me so much, and then changed the subject. I'm going to play the audio for you now. I think this is a completely unedited recording, so it may be a little disjointed and messy. So, we're
2: here on Halloween night, folks. Well, for us, it's a few weeks before Halloween, but we'll be releasing this episode on the big day. This is a special bonus episode where we will actually be spending the night in the Soundside Hotel. The hotel is, you guessed it, a soundfront resort on the Outer Banks that was built in 1932 and only remained in operation for about 20 years before it was abandoned under mysterious circumstances in the fifties. The hotel had... Shit. Where are my notes? How many rooms does it have? (laughs) Now I've messed up.
3: That's fine. Just fix it in the edit.
2: Okay. The hotel had 115 rooms, a pool, a restaurant, an inside dining area, and an outside beachfront dining area. The average price for a room in 1950 was about $12 per night, which translates to roughly $130 in 2018. Now, I know what you're thinking. Wait, did you just say it was abandoned under mysterious circumstances? Yes, I did. And we're going to go to Jack to dig a little bit deeper into
3: that. Hello, folks, and Happy Halloween. So, yes... This hotel was abandoned overnight in December of 1953. Guests say they were woken up by the hotel staff in the middle of the night, stating that the hotel had to be evacuated. Several people who stayed there that night say that hotel staff told them it was due to a small fire in the basement. However, they also claim they didn't see any fire trucks or emergency vehicles. They were put up in another hotel a few miles away, where they spent the remainder of their vacations. They weren't allowed to return to the sound side to collect any forgotten belongings.
2: And that's it, right? That's the story? That wraps up the show?
3: Not exactly. Some of the guests that were there that night never returned home.
2: That's right, people. These guests simply vanished.
3: There were five families sleeping on the second floor. It was December on the beach, so it still wasn't very busy at this time. None of those people ever returned home. However, records show that they all checked out the day before, which was anywhere from a day to three days before their checkout date. One of the families had even arrived that day.
2: And they supposedly just up and left before even spending one night?
3: According to the paperwork, yes.
2: So what happened?
3: After that, pretty much nothing. There was little to no criminal investigation by local police into the disappearances. The owner just sort of disappeared from society, and all of the staff were let go and business stopped. The building fell into disrepair until it came under new ownership in the 60s.
2: Right. And at that point, people started claiming it was haunted. And it really didn't do great business under the new ownership. Rumor has it that it was poorly maintained, the service was bad, the food was bad, like literally bad. Several people reported food poisoning. According to the owners at the time, this was because they had a hard time hiring and keeping staff. Because no one in town wanted to work there. Or if they did work there, they never stayed longer than a few weeks. I'm
3: trying to sleep. Because it was haunted.
2: Exactly. So the hotel closed down again and remained unused until the late 70s, when it was sold again. The new owners didn't open it as a hotel, though. They hosted ghost tours here, and it's also a popular filming location.
3: So they kind of took advantage of the situation, and to this day, it remains under that ownership, and you can still come here for ghost tours or if you want to shoot a movie.
2: Or a podcast.
3: Or a podcast.
2: On today's episode, we'll be interviewing hotel staff and management, as well as recording any experiences we have here during the night. We're excited to get started.
4: (gasps) Please. Just let me sleep.
2: Jack and I are here in the downstairs lounge with Judy, the current manager of the hotel. So, are you guys paranormal investigators? We get a lot of those. <laughs> Not usually, no. I have a podcast about North Carolina history, and we're recording this for our Halloween episode.
5: Oh, wonderful. We have been getting a lot of podcasters here more recently. Seems to be the medium of choice these days. I guess I'll ask the most obvious question first.
2: Have you ever had a paranormal experience here?
5: Um, I, I hear footsteps and knocking all the time, but I pretty much tune it out at this point. I've had one significant experience, but not as many as some other people. I sort of hoped it'd be more exciting when I started this job, but I I am a little grateful they've decided to leave me alone for the most part. What was your experience? Okay, so um, I was in the old laundry room one night. It's a storage room now. And I remember reaching for the door handle to leave, and the next thing I know, I'm at the top of the hallway stairs. I don't remember opening the door or walking up the stairs, And I just stood there, bewildered. And then I heard a voice say, I'm so sorry. Can you show us the place it happened? Sure. Let's go.
2: So, we're standing here at the top of the staircase where Judy had her experience. I've kind of got the
5: chills. What about you, Jack?
3: If I start hearing voices, I might just abandon this whole thing.
5: You know, oddly, it wasn't very scary. I I was spooked. I called out to figure out who it was, but I was the only one working that day. I didn't find anyone else in the building. But I really didn't get the sense that it wanted to hurt me. It sounded genuinely sorry. I'm not sure for what. If it's listening, I would want it to know it doesn't have to be sorry for anything. Now I'm just kind of sad.
3: What do you think happened here, Judy?
5: It didn't happen in my lifetime, so it's hard for me to speculate... But a lot of people in the community and in my family think there was some kind of cover-up. Something happened to those people, and they didn't want it to affect tourism. Unfortunately, the only physical evidence we still have are those checkout records, which don't tell
3: us much. Then why abandon the hotel? Why would the owner disappear?
5: I'm really not sure. I guess there are plenty of other hotels. Do
2: you think the police were involved in the...
5: I think they would've had to be. It's a small town. We still don't have a very big police force. And back then, it was probably even smaller. And if tourism dropped off, everyone's livelihood would be at stake. We were finally bouncing back from World War II and I don't think anyone wanted to give up the money. Is the activity usual?
2: sitting in the dining room with Charlie Nelson, one of the tour guides at the hotel.
0: Hey, folks.
2: Charlie, tell us about the tours you do.
0: Well, we go around the whole building, but most of the focus and education is on the second floor and the families who disappeared there.
2: And do people actually experience paranormal phenomena on these tours?
0: Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. We're purely authentic, so that means there's no one behind the walls pulling any strings. If the ghosts don't come out, they don't come out. I'd say nine out of 10 tours, nothing happens. Honestly, the people who report strange experiences the most are the filmmakers who come here. They see stuff all the time. Like what? Well, my favorite one was when this film student came to work on a project. The interesting part about this is that he wasn't making anything scary. He was collaborating with a musician to make a music video. Anyway. They went out to hit up the bars in town and when he got back, his camera was hanging from the ceiling fan by the power cord. (laughs) Well, he was pretty livid about it because it was a very expensive camera, but Judy showed him the security footage. No one went into his room. What floor was he on? Could someone have come in through the window?
2: Or maybe he did it himself, as a hoax.
0: He was on the first floor, but none of the outside security cameras picked anything up, either. And that's not even the weirdest part. The camera turned on and started recording during the whole thing. As it's hoisted up and swings from the ceiling, you can't see anyone in the room. Well, you room. know, you'd see someone's legs if they were tying it to the ceiling fan. It just seems to fly up on its own.
2: It was my room. That's weird. You're not messing with me, right?
0: You can see it for yourself. He posted about it all online. I will concede that he's a film student and probably knows plenty of fancy camera tricks, but it's the most compelling evidence I've seen so far. Let's watch the video. Oh yeah, yeah, of course. I have it bookmarked, actually. Let me pull it up.
2: Let's pause the recording and just link in the show notes.
0: Yeah, yeah, good idea.
2: So we just took a look at the film student's video online and also compared it to the hotel security footage and i have to say it was one of the creepiest things i've ever seen the camera really does look like it floated up on its own the weirdest part is that the video is time stamped for after the student left and before he came back We theorized for a bit after watching that if the student had manipulated the time zone on the camera, he could have hypothetically filmed the whole thing earlier and made it look like it was happening after he left if he timed his return to the hotel just right. But we're here to document, not to debunk. Continuing my interview with Charlie in three, two. Okay, Charlie, the big question. Have you had any personal experiences here in the hotel?
0: Well, I'm going to be honest. This was just a job to me when I first started, but I've seen some weird shit. Oh, oh, oh I'm sorry. Am I allowed to swear? <laughs> we'll beep it out. It's fine. Just swear away.
2: <laughs> yeah, we love beeping.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the, the usual. Shadows, voices. But the weirdest thing is the second floor painting painting? Well, there's these really cheap paintings. The new owners put it up just to decorate the place when they bought it. And there's this one. Well, I'm in the middle of a tour, and it just jumps off the wall, lands in the middle of the floor, and I nearly crap my pants in front of all these people who obviously start accusing the whole thing of being fake. Everyone wants to go on a ghost tour until actual scary shit happens. It's not fun anymore now every time i walk by that painting it falls to the floor and it's just me too
2: can we go up there and test it out
0: yeah let's go
2: so we've been walking around on the second floor for about 20 minutes now and nothing weird has happened with any of the paintings
3: charlie i swear we still believe you
0: (laughs) oh it's it's fine I had a feeling they would make me look like an idiot.
3: What do you think happened here back then, Charlie?
0: I don't know. Obviously something bad that the owners didn't want getting out. I don't know if one of the guests got violent and hurt some other people, or if it was like a gas leak kind of thing.
2: So, Jack and I have settled in for the evening. We're going to leave one of our recorders going for the night to see if we pick anything up. But so far, it's been kind of quiet. We booked one of the infamous second floor rooms, so if there's any ghosts here, please be nice to us.
3: As far as ghosts and the afterlife go, what are your beliefs? Real? Not real?
2: I think if you want to believe something hard enough, you can manifest it. Or you can misinterpret everyday things for something paranormal, if there's enough adrenaline pumping through your system. I think death is permanent, and most experiences people have are just products of their imagination. Wow. What? I gave you an honest answer.
3: What a bummer. I can't believe I'm marrying you. So, if I die before you, you don't want me to visit you? You're
2: allowed to visit me. You're the only ghost allowed to visit me. I don't have time for any other hauntings.
3: Got myself a romantic, folks.
2: I'm cutting this all out, I swear.
3: They don't ever have to leave now. About you. So, I'm convinced my grandpa's spirit is still in our garage. There's just weird stuff that happens. I remember I used to hear him out there on his workbench banging away at something, and sometimes I still do even when I'm the only one there.
2: That's sweet. It really is.
3: Maybe ghosts just don't bother with me. I mean, why would they? After everything you just said? Okay, stop.
1: The rest of the audio is my sister wrapping up the episode, and nothing strange happens. Again. My sister won't admit that there's anything off about the audio. But again, this was the last episode she ever recorded. I have no idea what to make of it. I believe it's possible that she recorded it as a prank to her listeners, but got so swept up in her marriage and being a new mom that this episode never aired, and she forgot she ever did it. It's strange that there aren't any other versions of the audio on the computer, though. The other possibility is that she's pranking me. If she is, I guess I'll find out. And I suppose we can't rule out that she really did record something unexplainable in that hotel without realizing it, and just isn't comfortable talking about it. If history is to be believed, those people were never found, and the original owner was never heard from again, I'll let you draw your own conclusions.
0: Kids can easily develop imaginary friends, especially after something as traumatic as their parents getting divorced. And sometimes those imaginary friends can take on traits that, to older people, might seem a little, well, creepy. But maybe there's something more going on than a child's flight of fancy. In this tale, shared with us by author C.K. Walker, we find out that the terror is more than just a world of imagination. Performing this tale are Mike Delgadio, Nicole Goodnight, Nicole Doolin, Jeff Clement, Jessica McAvoy, Aaron Lillis, Atticus Jackson, and Alexis Bristow. So don't worry about the voices around us or the voices above us. Just worry about the voices underneath us.
6: 19 sabre lane i was 13 and my little sister was five she was the first one to hear the voices dad left our family for a co-worker and 119 sabre was all my mom could afford it was an older house in a very rural neighborhood and a bit run down but there was a room for each of us and mom did her best because the house was small all of letty's toys were moved into the basement. I didn't like it much down there. Concrete floor, cement walls, and a smell that can only be described as wet. Mom put some fun rugs down there for Letty to play on, and unlike me, my sister loved it. She called it her second bedroom. About a month after we moved in, my sister turned six. We were further away from her school, and Mom had a hard time getting anyone to make the drive for her birthday party. We threw her one anyway, you know, a little party, just the three of us. Letty smiled and clapped her hands, but I could tell that she was sad that none of her friends had showed up. A few weeks later, Letty started talking about new friends that lived in the basement. Mom told me I always had imaginary friends at that age, too, and not to bother Letty about them. But I thought it was weird that hers only lived in the basement, so I decided to ask her about them anyway. I waited until a Saturday when Mom was working, which wasn't hard because she worked most Saturdays. I found Letty in the basement, as usual, sitting on a green and purple rug, racing her toy horses around a track.
7: Hey. Hey.
6: She smiled at me. She had a cute little cherub smile, big dimples, and a toothy grin. I remember that.
7: Are you playing with your friends?
6: She shook her head, black curls swinging around her shoulders.
8: No, they're not here.
6: Oh. I sat down next to her and picked up one of her little horses. Do they play horses with you?
7: No, Andy, don't be dumb. Why can't they play horses with you? Because
8: they live underneath us.
6: I frowned at her and set the horse down. She picked it up immediately and began brushing its hair. Underneath the floor?
8: Yeah, Uh, I hear them sometimes, especially at night.
6: My eyes fell to the concrete. You can hear voices underneath this floor.
8: Yeah. You could, too, if you wanted to play down here with me.
6: I stood up and slowly walked around the room, looking for vents or something that could be filtering the noise from the TV down there. But there was nothing. Nothing but a drain in the floor.
7: Oh, do the voices come through this drain?
6: Letty shrugged, but didn't look at me.
7: What do the voices say?
6: At that, she finally paid attention jumping up from the floor and then jumping around the room as if she'd been waiting for this question for years.
7: All sorts
8: of things. They say, hello. They say, don't. They say, I didn't, I didn't. Sometimes they even say bad words.
6: Bad words? Like what? She giggled and then did a spin and sat back down.
8: (laughs) I can't say I'm not allowed. (laughs)
7: Is it, is it more than one voice? Like, like different voices?
8: Yeah, a lot of different ones.
7: What else do they
6: say? But she had lost interest in the conversation.
8: All sorts of stuff. Do you want to play with me? No,
6: I'm gonna go watch TV.
7: I stood up.
8: Mom always finds out when you watch bad movies.
7: And mom is my problem. Listen, will you come get me when you hear the voices again? Yeah, okay.
6: She shrugged. I started up the stairs, more confused than ever. Did mom need to know about this? Was Letty okay? I decided to Google it as I reached the top of the stairs. Andy! I walked a few steps back down then bent my head under the railing so I could see her.
7: What?
8: Do you want me to come tell you if they're just screaming but not saying words?
7: Sometimes they just scream?
8: Yeah, sometimes.
7: Yeah. Tell me next time you hear anything.
6: The following Tuesday afternoon started pretty normally. I had pretty much forgotten about Letty's friends, and middle school was going to be over in a couple of weeks. That day I saw Mom as soon as I got home from school. She was on her way out the door to her second job. God, I couldn't wait until I was 16 so I could work. I wanted to help my mom and my sister, but... Mom said I could do that just by keeping my grades up and staying out of trouble. But I wanted to do more. As soon as the door to her car slammed shut, Letty came running down the stairs.
8: Andy, you missed them. They were talking while you were at school.
6: I dropped my bag on the kitchen table. What were they saying?
8: Some were saying bad words. But I heard a lady saying, I had to do it. You weren't here.
6: What
7: else? What else did they say?
8: I heard a loud noise, like banging.
7: Like a gun?
8: No, like a thump. Thump, thump, thump.
7: And then what did you hear?
8: A man saying no a lot. He sounded sad. I didn't like it.
6: Anything else? Letty shrugged.
8: I don't know. I can't remember.
6: Next time you hear anything, Letty, you come and get me. She frowned.
7: You were at school. Then you get mom.
6: Letty looked at the floor and she shook her head.
8: I don't want to get mom.
6: I took her by the shoulders. Letty,
7: look at me. She did. It's very important that we figure out if other people besides you can hear the voices.
8: The people under the floor can hear each other.
7: Yeah, but can anyone else up here hear them? Or is it just you?
8: They're my friends. Maybe they don't want to talk to you. Just
7: promise me you'll come get one of us. Letty? She pulled away from me.
8: Fine, I promise.
6: That night I made Letty dino nuggets for dinner and then put her to bed at eight. Mom wouldn't be home from work until almost one, so I decided to do some investigation on my own. The things Letty said she was hearing didn't seem to be from the mind of a six-year-old. I knew in my gut that she was hearing something. I just needed to figure out what and where it was coming from. I decided to do some gaming since it would be boring down there sitting in the basement for hours, so I brought the laptop down. The Wi Fi strength was pretty weak, but it was better than nothing. All was quiet. I decided it must be a TV she was hearing, you know, filtering down from the upstairs somehow, because all the TVs were off now and it was silent no voices or anything so silent in fact that i fell asleep on the beanbag chair sometime around one i was awoken by the sound of someone stomping down the basement stairs
7: mom
6: she appeared at the bottom of the steps a small but mighty woman i sure never messed with her
9: (sighs) andy what are you doing up so late "'And who are you talking to?'
6: I sat up and rubbed my eyes, letting the laptop slide to the floor. "'Nobody.
9: I fell asleep.' "'Yes, you were. Do you have a phone I don't know about?' Oh, I, I told you I was sleeping.'
6: She raised an eyebrow at me.
9: "'You've never been a sleep-talker.' "'You heard a voice?' "'I heard you. I heard talking as soon as I opened the door to the basement.' What did I say?
6: I jumped up off the beanbag. She sighed, leaning her body back against the railing, a bearing of pure exhaustion.
9: I don't know. It was too quiet. Now please go to bed. I gotta be up at seven.
6: Okay. I laid awake the rest of the night, thinking one thing. Mom had heard them too. The night I finally caught them was a month later. I'd been down in the basement occasionally and still hadn't heard shit, but Letty did. But it always seemed to be while I was at school until one day it wasn't. My sister shook me awake at 2.37 in the morning. Her eyes were wide and her cheeks were pink with excitement.
8: Come on, they're talking.
6: I was out of bed and running as quietly as I could down the stairs to the basement door. As soon as I shut the door behind us, I turned to Letty on the stairs.
7: What were you doing in the basement in the middle of the night?
6: She frowned at me, pulling her cute little eyebrows together.
8: That's when my friends are awake.
6: They're not your friends.
8: Yeah, they are. Come on, come down the stairs.
6: She took my hand and led me to the bottom. Her toys were spread out everywhere as if she had indeed been playing
7: down there at two in the morning. You shouldn't be out of bed in the middle of the night. How often do you do this?
8: When I don't want to be alone and I want to be around my friends.
6: When you're lonely? Shh.
8: You have to be quiet if you want to hear them.
6: She pulled me to the center of one of her rugs, and we sat down cross-legged and facing each other. What were they saying?
8: They were talking about their babies.
6: They have babies? Letty nodded.
8: Sometimes I hear the babies cry.
6: We sat in the silence for a few moments. Letty, do they ever talk back to you? She looked at me and frowned.
8: Sometimes.
6: Does it ever seem like they can hear you?
8: I don't think they can.
6: Then she put her little finger to her lips. I didn't have to wait very long. It came up through the floor beneath, just like she said. A long, slow wail and not as quiet as i would have thought it was the keening of something suffering
7: what is that
6: i jumped up from the floor and letty grabbed onto my hand pulling me back down i waited again there was nothing until i could make out a woman's voice she was hysterical
2: the baby is dead why the baby is dead
6: Then a man's voice, flat and uninterested. It is dead. Letty picked up one of her Barbies and began changing its clothes, as if she'd heard this shit every day or something. I listened for a few more minutes, but there was nothing. Another hour, but all silence. Letty had already fallen asleep on the rug beside me. I carried her to bed, then tried to fall asleep in mine. But all I could think was... There were people living under our house. I hemmed and hawed about telling mom. She was under a lot of stress, dealing with so much and on no sleep. I didn't want her to worry until I had evidence to back up my claims. I spent all my nights in the basement and she noticed. My grades started to slip. I barely acknowledged my own 14th birthday. And when I did, it was to ask for something, even though I knew it was hard for her. I begged mom to get me a cell phone for my birthday that year. And she picked up extra shifts to get it, but I got it. I felt awful for my mom, but I needed something that I could record with. And over three weeks, I collected the following recordings. His body was going...
8: No, it's missing... I didn't know him. You tell him. Where am
9: I? I can't hear can you?
0: <laughs> Wrong way. Where is that? I can
1: I can't see. Show up. He can't hear you. It just goes down. Where am I? Fuck
6: you, bitch! You know, and you never will.
1: Is it forever? Where? What is that thing? I don't want to go. Where am I? I just wanted to know. We can't.
6: And screaming. Lots and lots of screaming. I started to think that maybe there was a tunnel under the house. Like maybe people used the tunnels to cross our rural area. I asked our neighbors and my teachers, but everyone said there were no underground tunnels. I thought I could hear the voices best through the drain, but I recorded from a few different corners of the room and it didn't seem to matter. They were all just coming up through the floor. And then, one night, I heard someone die. I know that's what I heard. I wasn't recording at the time, but I still remember every word.
7: Please. Please. No. Let me beg. (laughs) I'm the only one. And you're several. You can't. You can't.
6: He kept yelling it the whole time, but I guess they could. I don't know what they did to him, but he went from yelling to moaning to what I would later understand was a death rattle. And then. A few minutes later, a man said, He's back. I was scared. I was confused. And suddenly I realized I was screaming, stop at the top of my lungs. The basement door banged open and my mom came running down the stairs in her pajamas. She shook me like she thought she was rousing me from a nightmare. And I kept screaming, stop. Just before she picked me up off the floor, I heard two words come from underneath the cement. Two words that started everything. Two words that I would hear in my nightmares for the rest of my life. Words that don't really mean a whole lot, except through a basement floor. Hear that. After Mom left the next morning, I took Letty by her tiny shoulders, looked her in the eyes, and made her promise not to talk to the people underneath the basement anymore. I told her that they were bad people who would hurt her. She nodded, watery eyes blinking rapidly, and then promised she wouldn't.
7: Even if they talk to you or try to get your attention, you don't talk back, okay?
8: Okay, I promise.
7: I'll be your friend. You don't need them.
8: Will you play with me?
7: I'll play with you. And I'll start taking you to the park so you can meet some kids your own age.
8: The park is too far away. Mom has to drive us.
7: Then I'll carry you. Just promise you won't talk to them anymore. And no more going into the basement in the middle of the night. Okay?
6: But it didn't matter what she said. Because two days later, Mom came home and wanted to talk to me about something. She made good points, but I argued anyway.
9: It's just temporary. No, I won't live with him. Just until the end of the school year. No, Letty needs me here and so do you. And what about what you need? All the nightmares, the screaming. Your grades are horrible, Andy. Maybe being at Dad's for a few weeks will help center you. His new place is much closer to your school, and you can see your friends more. It won't be so bad, right? Mom? This isn't up for discussion, Andrew. I'm worried about you.
6: She rose from the kitchen table as if that was it. We were done. No way
7: in hell. I am not leaving you guys here alone. Mom, there are people living under our basement. I've heard them to the floor. Letty's heard them
9: too. Oh, stop it, Andy. Don't bring your sister into this. It's true. I have recordings. The other night when you heard me screaming, that wasn't a
7: nightmare. They were. they were killing someone down there. That's enough. Listen. If you just. if you listen, you'll hear it. Wait, let me get my phone.
9: I said that's enough. Just listen, Mom. Please.
6: She said nothing, but she didn't move either. So I ran to get my phone from my room. I played her the recordings, all of them. She told me they were clearly from a gangster movie on TV or a crime show. She accused me of trying to trick her, to scare her, to scare my little
7: sister. Please, mom, just just ask Letty.
9: She'll tell you, I'm telling the truth. And your version of the truth is that there are people living in a room underneath our house.
6: I hesitated.
9: It might be more like a, a tunnel or something. My God. <laughs> Why won't you believe that? Maybe it's leftover from the Underground Railroad. Andy, that is not what the Underground Railroad is. How do you know? And this is Oregon. Mom, please. Next time I hear them, I'll come get you.
6: Mom sighed, and in that relaxation of her face... I saw her collapse a little inside. Her sadness, her desperation to take care of us.
7: Please, mom, don't make me go live with them. Lauren is nice. Lauren
9: is a bitch. Andrew.
6: I saw her try to find the swell of energy she needed to yell at me for what I'd said, but her reserves were gone. And after letting my name linger limply in the air for a moment, she closed the argument.
9: Go pack. What? Go. Your dad will be here in an hour or so.
6: Out of sheer pettiness, I packed as little as I could get away with. Dad's house wasn't my home, and I didn't plan to stay long. I would beg him, and he didn't really want me or Letty around anyway. It wouldn't take much. I knew it wouldn't.
8: Andy, where are you going?
6: I looked up for my bag of boxers and t-shirts to find Letty hanging in the doorway. To dad's, just for a
7: little while.
8: Am I going to?
6: I licked my lips. How could I tell her I was leaving her alone when I just promised not to? I'll be back really soon, Letty. Tears filled her brown eyes.
8: But I don't want you to go.
6: I walked over to the doorway and knelt down to give her a hug. Do you remember your promises? She nodded her head fervently and buried her head in her stuffed dinosaur. And never at night, right?
8: Okay, Andy.
7: Okay. Mom said I'm coming back this weekend to stay over on Saturday night so she can work. So I'll see you on Saturday night, okay?
8: Okay.
6: I hated my dads. He paid no attention to me, which was fine but Lauren kept trying to engage me. She was younger than my dad and her desperate attempt to play mom was obvious. I ignored her like I ignored everything in that house. I called Letty or she called me every day, but I knew she was getting lonely out there. Mom had had to hire a sitter for when she worked nights and Letty didn't like her much. I worried a lot about my sister, but to be honest, It was nice to be so close to my friends again. Sometimes I forgot about Letty and the people under the basement. To this day, I can't remember what I was doing that was so much more important. The first Saturday back, Letty gave me the biggest hug her little arms could manage. She wouldn't leave my side, even when mom tried to make her so that she could show me something.
9: I asked our landlord for the most recent survey of this property. She gave it to me, and I want you to look at this, Andy.
6: Mom turned the laptop toward me. I had no idea what I was looking at.
9: What does all this say? It says that there's nothing underneath our house. There are no rooms or tunnels. Just dirt. (laughs) But Mom! I showed you this in the hopes that you would drop your prank. Do you really want to scare your little sister?
8: I'm not scared. They're my friends.
9: They are not your friends!
6: She pushed away from me, and her chin started to wobble.
8: They said you're not my friend. They said you left me, and they
7: never would. I had to leave you. Mom and Dad made me. Are you seriously talking to them? Did you break your promise, Letty? I'm all alone all the time.
8: You're mean to me and take away my friends. Stop.
9: Both of you. Now, I don't know who started this. But I want it to end. We have a two-year lease here, and we have to manage. If you two are scared of the basement... I'm not scared!
6: Mom gave her a cutting look.
9: If you two are scared of the basement, then we can board it up. Move all of Letty's toys to her room.
8: But there's no room.
9: We'll make room, Letty. Now go outside, both of you. Fine. Come on, Letty.
6: Letty had a stash of plastic fairies in the dying garden no one had time to take care of. I hated being outside there. We were surrounded by forest, but it was sparse and brown and ugly. I walked into it anyway. I remembered when we first moved here. I'd wanted to explore it, see if there were any secret caves or treehouses or clubhouses or old abandoned cars or crashed planes. I'd never found one interesting thing, though. As I walked around swatting flies and sharp tree branches out of my face, I began to feel like someone was out here with me. It was just something I felt. Our neighbors were far away, but the voices under the house belonged to someone, and I didn't know who or why or where they were or how they got in. I'd done my research, you know. I decided maybe it was like a secret tunnel for kidnappings or human trafficking, whatever that meant. Secret, illegal slavery, I think. I could hear the things they said and the things they did. These were bad people. And now it sounded like they were talking to my sister, like they were now aware of her. The girl came out of nowhere. One minute I was walking and talking to myself, and then I looked up and she was there. She was older than me, maybe in her early 20s,
10: and she was filthy. Whoa. Are you lost? No. Are you? Of course not. I live here. In the forest? No, idiot. Down the path.
6: I looked to where she was pointing. That's a path? She shrugged. It is to me. I looked her over again. Torn, muddy jeans, ripped sweatshirt, a rat's nest on her head that had once been strawberry blonde hair.
10: Why are you so dirty? She shrugged again. I like to dig. Aren't you too old to be playing in the woods? Aren't you too young to be alone in them?
6: I watched her sit down and, honest to God, start digging a hole in the dirt with her hands.
10: What are you digging for? Treasure, I guess.
7: You
6: ever find anything? Nope. She just kept digging. If she wasn't answering my questions, I'd have thought she was oblivious to me, truly, in her own world. Then why keep looking?
10: Dunno, something to do.
6: I kicked at her little pile of dirt. Don't
10: you want, like, a shovel or something? You could
6: dig a lot deeper. At that, she looked up. I pulled my foot away from the dirt pile. sorry.
10: You don't want to go digging too deep around here.
6: I raised an eyebrow.
10: Why not? Because you might fall through.
6: She went back to her digging. To what? Are
7: you sure you don't want, like, a stick or something? Why would I need a stick?
6: Okay. What could you fall through to? She didn't answer. You know, we're renting 119 Saber Lane. She nodded violently. Kept digging.
10: Of course I knew that.
6: There's voices under the basement sometimes. She nodded.
10: There's voices under a lot of basements. Don't talk to them. They can't hear you unless you talk to them. They don't even know you're there.
7: They already... Well... I think they already
6: know about my sister and me. She stopped digging, but didn't look up at me.
10: You talked to them? I thought I heard, and then I realized
7: I was screaming through the floor at them. My sister said they're talking to her now, telling her things, telling her lies.
6: The girl started pushing all the dirt back into her hole. Then she turned sideways and started digging a new hole.
10: Who are they? Lost people.
7: They seem like bad people.
10: You would be too if you were down there as long as them. Why can't they come out?
6: She snapped her eyes to mine.
10: Who said they couldn't? Where? The earth is thin here. Don't go too deep. What do you mean? They're not for you to hear. It's unnatural.
6: I stepped back from her. You're crazy. The girl stood up, wiped her hands off on her dirty jeans.
10: No, I'm not, but doesn't matter what you think yes it does no it doesn't why not because if they want to get out they have to pull someone in and maybe it'll be you but you showed them where the earth is thin you shouldn't have done that what will they do dig into my basement they don't have to they can pull you down one for one they'll be up here and you'll be down there forever
6: I don't believe you I don't care I have to go I left the digging girl there and ran, and I mean, sprinted back to my house. Mom was in the kitchen making Letty lunch. I fell into a chair beside her.
7: Letty, look at me. She did. No more going into the basement. Ever, okay? You can keep all your toys in my room. Play with them. Will you do that?
9: Never, ever. I think your brother's right, honey. I want you two to stay out of the basement.
7: We will. Right, Letty? They're not your friends, okay? They tell you nice things, but they don't mean them.
6: She stared at her mac and cheese, kicking her feet back and forth under the table.
7: But then I'll have no one. You'll have me.
8: You promise to call me every day? Yes. Pinky promise?
7: Pinky promise. Now you. You promise not to go in the basement?
8: (laughs) Yes, I Pinky promise.
6: Letty and I had never broken a pinky promise in our lives. We would both break this one. I was at Dad's for another two weeks and I was good to my word. I talked to Letty every morning and every night. And then just before middle school graduation and the weekend I would be coming home, I forgot to call Letty. Jason was having a party at his parents' house. It was my first, you know, cool party since parents wouldn't be home. Dad didn't care, so I didn't mention it. I had my first beer and my first kiss that night. I got high and I forgot about our call. I had no idea what it would cost Letty. The next morning, a little hungover, I packed up my things excited to go home to my mom and sister. Dad said she was picking me up at noon. But she didn't show up. Dad was annoyed, I could tell. And then he got mad, and he blew up her phone. And then finally, finally, she called him back. Letty was missing. Dad drove me over there, looking both afraid and irritated. I'd never seen him care about anything enough to be scared. That made me more scared. As soon as we got there, Dad sent me to my room so he could talk to the cops with Mom. I tried to listen, but an officer spotted me and took me to my room to interview me. He asked me a bunch of questions, and I was honest. I didn't tell him about the voices. There was yelling. I could hear Dad yelling at Mom about how this was her fault. The cops tried to calm him down and threatened to arrest him. I heard him yell that now all his plans for the day were shot. I never liked my dad very much. Most of the cops left to interview the neighbors. Dad went home. Mom sat in the kitchen, crying. The officer that had interviewed me told me what he knew. Letty didn't know anyone in this area and didn't like to leave the house. I already knew that. Letty had bugged my mom about using the phone to call me. Mom had let her, but I didn't pick up. Letty went to bed sad. Letty was not in bed the next morning. Nothing was out of place, no one seems to have broken in. He didn't say it, but I knew what they thought. Letty missed me and had left to go find me. But I knew it was worse than that. She hadn't left the house. She was under it. As soon as he left, I pulled out my cell. One missed call.
8: You said you would call every day, and you promised. Today is a day, and you didn't call, and I have no one to talk to. Can you call me? Bye.
6: And that was it. Mom went to bed, or at least went to her room around midnight. I crept down the stairs, across the main floor, and into the basement. The cops had been down there. They dusted and photographed, looking for anything, any clue, any answer. But the answers were beneath the floor. I laid down on the concrete and waited. But there were no voices that night. Letty? I called to her many times throughout the night. But she never answered. Weeks went by. I was dead inside. I slept in the basement. Mom was beyond caring, and the voices were back, but I no longer recorded them. I yelled at them to ask about Letty, but they never heard me, and I never heard her. So then I wondered, maybe she had run away to find me. Maybe some nice family took her in, and she's still too scared to tell them her real name. Maybe, maybe, maybe... I saw the digging girl again, about a month later. Mom had gone numb and I hated being at the house with her. She wasn't even sad, she was just empty. So I had to get out. I went out into the woods because I'd been thinking about what the digging girl had said, that the earth was thin here. Don't dig too deep. Well, maybe I wanted to dig deep. Maybe I wanted to fall through. Just like last time, I found her digging. Took a couple of days, but I found her. My sister's gone. I know. From the news?
10: My friend told me. How do I get her back?
6: She laughed. (laughs) I noticed the hole she was digging was much deeper than before.
10: You can't get her back.
7: Well, then maybe I'll dig a hole deeper than yours, dig until I fall through, and then I'll find her.
10: Even if you fell down there, You would never find her. Why not? Because that's the point, dummy.
6: I watched her for a moment.
10: What is that place?
6: She stopped digging and looked up at me, thoughtfully.
10: It's sort of like... Hell, I guess. If you're lost or angry, you go there.
7: What does it look like?
10: I don't know. It's hard to see. Like a cave system, maybe. Really dark and cold. And it's a terrible labyrinth. You never know where you are and if you've been there before. How do you know all of this? And the souls down there with you, they're lost too. Sometimes they're cruel. Sometimes they're indifferent. It's much better up here.
6: I swallowed. Were you one of them? She started giggling. It was a (laughs) hysterical sound. I backed away from her, turned when I had enough distance, and started running away. But I heard what she called after me just before the wind took it.
10: Don't talk to the man in the woods. He doesn't know where he is yet.
6: But I didn't see any man in the woods. Two months later, our landlord gave Mom permission to break the lease. She couldn't be there anymore, in that house. But we were in town because Mom wanted to keep close. Everybody understood the town had been through it before. Someone else went missing a few years back. Everyone knew what had happened at 119 Saber Lane, so no one rented it. I snuck out of our apartment at night sometimes and walked there. I did start to see a man in the woods, but his back was always to me, and he was never moving. Just standing, looking at something. I avoided him. It was almost a year before I finally heard Letty through the basement floor. I was laying on the concrete, empty of rugs and creature comforts now, strumming my guitar on my stomach. I'd learned Letty's favorite song. I put her name in the lyrics. It was nearly 4 a.m., and I was strumming lazily, singing her name, nodding off. Andy? My eyes snapped open, and I pushed the guitar off my stomach and flipped over.
7: Letty? Letty? Andy? Andy, where are you? I can't see you. I'm in the basement. I'm above you. Can you hear me? Letty? Yes, there's nothing above me. Letty! Are you okay? Are you hurt? I don't know. I'm very,
8: very lost, and I can't see anything, and it's cold, and I don't know what time it is. Are you moving home today?
6: Christ. She had no idea how long she'd been gone.
7: Letty! How long have you been down there? I don't know.
8: Every time I die, I get confused.
7: Every time you die?
8: Yeah. I die a lot. Fall down the holes a lot. Something follows me like an animal. I stay away from people now.
7: I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Letty. Why did you go down into the basement? You promised.
8: I'm sorry I got lonely. You didn't call me. You pinky promised that you would.
7: Listen, the earth is thin here. Can you feel that? Can you pull yourself up? Or pull me down there?
6: There was silence for a moment.
7: How do I do that? I don't know, but you have to try. Listen to my voice. Pull me down. Nothing. Letty? There's something coming.
6: Then she was gone, and then everything was silent. I didn't hear her again for a while. The house eventually got rented, and I couldn't sneak in anymore. I looked for the digging girl a lot, but she was rarely around and barely answered my questions before breaking into insane laughter. The man in the woods started to face me. He started moving. He even tried smiling eventually. When I turned 18, I rented 119 Saber Lane. When I turned 25, I bought it. But I never had a family or even a girlfriend. I spent most of my time in the basement, talking to the floor. I wanted someone to hear me, to pull me down there. But the earth didn't seem as thin anymore. They never heard me, and no one pulled me through. My mom got remarried when I was 30. I was happy for her, but I skipped the wedding. Instead, I stayed home with expensive digging equipment I'd rented that weekend. I turned up the earth. I dug as deep as I could on my property, but it was just dirt and more dirt. The digging girl showed up the second day on the edge of my property watching me, interested in the dig, I suppose. She was older now, almost 40 but still dirty. When I told her what I was doing, she laughed.
10: (laughs) That's not how you fall through.
6: I never did figure out how you fall through, and the digging girl eventually moved on. The man in the woods left, too. I talked to Letty about four times over 30 years. (sighs) I lived for those days, and they were so few... She was always six years old and she was always confused. She never stayed underneath the basement because she said bad things live up here. Every time I talked to her, it was harder to hear her. The earth was thickening, the veil was closing. Our last conversation was the saddest one. I was almost 50 and Letty thought I was our dad. I told her how much I loved her and missed her But she just kept asking for Andy. She wouldn't believe that I was Andy. She thought I was lying to her, tricking her. She started crying. She told me that Andy must have abandoned her, and if he didn't love her anymore, that she was never coming back. And she said some things I couldn't understand because she was crying too hard, and her voice was so faint. And she was right. She never did come back. And within a year, the voices were gone altogether. (sighs) So, I guess if there is a lesson here, it's this. If you hear voices under the floor, don't talk to them. Board up the house and move away. I live in an apartment in Portland now, far from the thin earth of the countryside. I still wake up sometimes to screams. But they're always mine.
0: We've all heard those schoolyard ghost stories. Recite Bloody Mary in the mere five times and she'll come. Don't walk down a certain tunnel. Don't pick up hitchhikers on a particular night. But there are lesser known stories too. Ones that seem too preposterous to be true. But in this tale, shared with us by author Manon Lysett, we discover that even the most implausible playground legends might point a finger towards the truth. So, join me as I share this tale, in which we learn that it's worth being cautious of even the most unbelievable things in The Ballad of Baxter Baby Hands. People like to make fun of me because one of my hands is slightly smaller than the other. They probably wouldn't laugh if they knew the story behind it. You see, back in grade school we used to hide out in this dark corner under the stairs at lunch and share horror stories. It was the perfect spot because it was naturally kind of spooky and because it was out of sight from our teachers and hall monitors who banned everything we ever liked, horror stories included. There was one tale Kevin Farland, or Fartland, as we called him, liked to tell to the new kids, the story of Baxter Baby Hands. I'll never forget the first time I heard it, because I started laughing and Fartland punched me in the face. Ah, good times. As Fartland's story goes, there was once an orphan named Baxter who worked in a factory in town in the olden days. Back then, it wasn't uncommon for factories to employ kids to fix their machines whenever they got jammed because they were smaller and could fit through the gears. Baxter had the smallest and most nimble hands out of all the kids working at this factory. So small, in fact, that they called him Baxter Baby Hands. He was the one they always called on to fix the big grinder near the back. One day, the foreman asked him to go pluck out a rock caught in the grinder's gears. The problem was he'd forgotten to turn off the machine. So little Baxter walked over to this big machine, reached inside, and yanked out the rock. As soon as he did, the gear started turning again, and Baxter's hands got crushed. They say his screams could be heard two towns over. Baxter survived, but his hands were gone forever. He was just a poor orphan kid, so the doctors didn't bother doing anything beyond patching him up. And, of course, without hands, he couldn't work anymore. Back then, if you didn't work, you were useless. They say Baxter starved to death, holding out his mangled stumps like a homeless person begging for food. But any money anyone might have thrown his way slipped between the fingers he no longer had. A few days passed, and then one night, the factory foreman woke up to something small and soft against his cheeks. At first, he thought it was his wife's hand, but as it came in for another stroke, he realized it was much, much smaller, about the size of a baby hand. He opened his eyes and saw Baxter leaning over him with itty-bitty hands growing out of his stumps. His wife found the foreman the next day, dead with both hands cut off over the course of the next 15 years every single person adult and child who'd been working at the factory the day Baxter lost his hands wound up dead with their own hands missing the townsfolk worried they'd be next ordered his pauper's grave to be dug up and his body to be burned when they opened his grave however they got more than they bargained for Inside was the rotting corpse of Baxter, with the foreman's hands sewn to his stumps and all the hands he'd collected sewn to each of the fingers. They'd shriveled up like shrunken heads, looking almost as small as baby hands. Horrified, the townsfolk burned Baxter and his baby hands then and there, hoping to end the curse. That's how the legend began. Baxter Baby Hands... Some say one of the villagers took one of his baby hands as a souvenir before they burned him, so part of Baxter is still out there to this day. And if you whisper Baxter Baby Hand's name in the mirror three times before going to bed, he'll appear and touch you with his ten tiny hands. If he likes how your skin feels, he'll rip off one of your hands and add it to his collection. Bartland looked dead serious every time he told the story. Over the years, he'd even add to it and embellish it, saying his uncle had tried to summon Baxter Baby Hands and his great 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 grandfather was the foreman. I never believed the story myself, not until I decided to prove them all wrong by summoning Baxter Baby Hands. I asked a friend to be a witness and recited Baxter Baby Hand's name three times in his mirror before walking back home and going to bed. I never in a million years expected anything would come of it. I'd played Ouija and tried the Bloody Mary thing many times without seeing anything weird. I was convinced nothing would happen. I was wrong. I don't know at what time of night it happened, but I know I was in a pretty deep sleep when I felt something on my face. It wasn't enough to wake me up with a start, but it did stir me out of my slumber. It was a light, soft touch against my cheeks. I thought it was the curtain swaying in the breeze, so I ignored it at first and turned over. The gentle touch followed me across the bed, and that's when I became concerned. I tried to open my eyes, but as soon as I did, I felt tiny, somethings holding my eyelids down by force. Next, I tried to scream, but the same thing happened to my lips. Whatever was touching me slowly ran up and down my cheeks in gentle yet violating facial caresses. It spread from my cheeks to my forehead and chin, going from soft strokes to firm kneading, like a cat's paws except without the claws. I was paralyzed with fear, barely able to breathe as it happened. I couldn't call for my parents. Hell, I couldn't even see what was happening to me. I don't think I'll ever be that scared again in my life. The kneading of my face continued for at least ten minutes, as though it was being assessed, but I'm not sure to what end. Then the pressure on my eyelids let up, and I was able to open them. What I saw then defied all logic. There were blurry fingers everywhere and going in every direction. As they pulled away from my face, they came into focus, and the millions of little fingers became about fifty. They were tiny fingers on tiny baby hands, Baxter's baby hands. Each little hand was growing out of its own adult finger that wiggled and bowed like those of a puppeteer. One finger remained downcast, the baby hand at its end holding my mouth shut. Every digit, small and large alike, seemed to move of its own volition, yet were all tied to a single source controlling them. That source was a man standing behind the veil of fingers. He was short for his age and wore rags that looked three times too small. They were stretched out as though he'd slowly grown out of them, but never bothered changing into something better suited for him. As for his face, I honestly don't remember it. My eyes were too busy looking at the hypnotic mess of his many hands. It was hard to focus on anything else. Baxter smiled and pulled his right hand closer to his face. All six of the index fingers on it rose up to shush me as he released my mouth. I didn't know what to think, but I knew better than to scream. Something told me it would be worse if I screamed. He then reached for his left hand and plucked out one of his baby hands. It came off with an innocent pop. No blood, no resistance like a carrot coming out of the soil. His right hand, or rather, hands, gripped my left one tightly. They pulled at it so hard that I started crying soundlessly. The pressure was immense, like being the rope in a tug-of-war. Suddenly, I heard a pop, and I lost all feeling in that hand. I didn't want to look down, but my eyes did it on their own. My left hand was gone, and in its place was just a smooth, bloodless stump. I tried to scream, but a pair of baby hands quickly pushed my lips together until I could only groan. I then watched as Baxter pressed his severed baby hand against my bloodless stump, and I felt a prickle as the small veins on it reached into my skin and connected with mine. I could feel the baby hand... And within minutes, I could even wiggle its fingers. The sensation was beyond bizarre. I knew it wasn't mine. It felt different, but I had control of it. Baxter baby hands then put my left hand where he'd removed his own. It attached and deflated to the size of a baby hand. Without a single word, he turned around and walked out my bedroom door. I was beyond horrified. I just sat there in shock and watched the tiny baby hand at the foot of my wrist. It started to grow as I watched it. Within hours, it was almost the size of my normal hand, but it never quite made it all the way. Now, people make fun of me for my little hand. They say I'm a freak. I mean, if you didn't know it, you probably wouldn't even notice. But if I put my hands together, you can tell my fingers are half an inch too short and my hand isn't quite as wide. I know somewhere out there, Baxter Baby Hands still has it. And I know people are still stupid enough to try summoning him. Want to know how I know? Well, sometimes late at night. I can feel my fingertips gently caressing someone's face. But my hands are both next to me, holding my pillow. Sometimes you might utterly hate your sibling, can't stand to be around them. When you get together during a holiday, you know an argument will erupt. But when they get sick, it's still human nature to want to go and take care of them, no matter how much they infuriate you. But in this tale shared with us by author Mark Nixon, no good deed goes unpunished as one man finds a series of strange artifacts in his brother's home. Performing this tale... Is Jeff Clement. So let's take a look around this museum of oddities. Most of the things are creepy but harmless. Less so, however, is the mirror that reflects the great Earl.
11: known if the feeling I held for my brother was love. Although if you had asked me, of course, I would have said that it was. There was loyalty, yes, and some sort of fondness. But both were merely the result of time and expectation. Truth be told, I wouldn't have even said our relationship was on par with friendship. Sometimes I liked him, sometimes I didn't. There hadn't been any drama between us over the years. Even when his affairs came to light, I didn't shun him. And when his wife eventually left, I spent the obligatory extra time with him. In fact, after so many years, it seemed our contact would only spike when something negative happened in our lives. When our sister died last winter, for example... He spent Christmas with us. But of course, our time together only served to remind me why we didn't speak more regularly. Not long ago, however, his health began to decline rapidly. One day, he'd been at the store and taken a fall, complaining of a faintness that had remained since. I'd assumed the eight years between us were becoming more evident and he was simply showing his age... After word of a second incident, I dutifully visited him, but he brushed the whole thing off like it was nothing. Then, admittedly, pushed more by my wife than my own concern, I returned some weeks later and found my brother bedridden and his house in disarray. Doctors came and went, and the most that could be said was that he was sick. But sick he most certainly was. Julian had always been overweight and had shown it mostly in his face, but now his cheeks were gaunt and his eyes looked positively sunken, and myself, having always been a slim man, began to see more of a physical resemblance between us and indeed our late father. Perhaps it was this skin-deep reminder that led me to become his unofficial carer of sorts, I would visit most days after work to help him out of his bed or armchair for dinner, run a bath, and such. He accepted the help reluctantly, though over time it became more of a necessity than a courtesy. Before long, we hired professional help who would spend most of the day with him before I arrived. Julian began to appreciate my visits more and more. Cynically, I took this to be the natural vulnerability we all experience when sick, rather than a true blossoming of his feelings. Or perhaps I simply felt better thinking that way. You would think all the time away from home would have put a strain on my family, but things could scarcely have gone better. Our daughter completed her master's with distinction and quickly found funding for a PhD. My wife inherited a good sum of money from an aunt she had barely known, and at work I enjoyed success that rarely came so readily. Even our dog, who I suspected had been on his way to death's door, suddenly found new life and sprang back into good health. Julian, however, was only deteriorating further, and eventually, under much duress, his doctor convinced him to go into hospital for observation. Although his visit would ultimately prove fruitless, my wife and I opted to spend a weekend at his home, making it as clean and comfortable as possible. Having never kept much company since the divorce, it could be said that my brother lived in organized chaos. His home was cluttered with antiques, knick-knacks, and piles of books that seemed to be in no discernible order. I made futile attempts to arrange things, but abandoned this endeavor before long. Instead, we opted to simply clean and declutter. Upon further investigation, it appeared that Julian's tastes had branched out into the more arcane and eccentric objects. He'd harbored unusual tastes even as a child. When forced to go outside and play with the other boys, he would wander around the yard looking for insects and lost toys. Most of his collection rarely moved once allocated a place on one of the many wooden shelves. There were Templar artifacts, ancient Nordic tools, Native American tools, and, on one prominent spot, some sort of African fertility statue, the eyes of which seemed to follow me as I moved about the room. I would have turned it away were it not for the enormous phallus that would have knocked over everything else in its path. The collection of Esoterica was a variety of conflicting cultures and ideologies. The more I saw of it, the more it seemed my brother had simply accumulated the bazaar for the sake of it. His interests appeared less scholarly and more pretentious. It wasn't until I began to dust his bedroom that I came across a more commonplace side to his collection. Now that I was simply not entering to address an immediate need of my brother's, I was able to properly take in his bedroom." Julian never seemed to wear more than one outfit, or at least, there were never more than three in circulation at any time. Yet here stood a fully stocked wardrobe. There were no shelves here, no artifacts. In fact, there was little about it that belied the messy nature of downstairs, save for a few half finished books scattered about the bed. It was a glimpse of movement that caused me to stop my own reflection, caught in a large, ornate mirror on the far wall. Dark though the room was, I was able to clearly see my own approach in the well-polished glass. The mirror seemed to be one of the few things in the house that had been regularly cleaned, though perhaps not to my own standards. Some sort of blemish smeared the edges of the glass on the right-hand side, And when I returned to the room with cloth to polish it, it remained stubborn and seemed to spread the more I attempted to remove it. I wondered if it was the dust in this poorly ventilated building or some sort of fatigue on my part. But I swore that there was a residual image in the mirror. What it was, I couldn't say. Perhaps there were many images layered upon one another. I once saw a computer in a museum that had been left unused for so long that the logo had burned onto the screen, a faint shadow still visible at all times. This phenomenon is the closest thing I can equate to what I saw, and neither rubbing my eyes nor the glass alleviated it. I took this as a sign that I'd had enough for one day, or indeed for the week, so I opted not to return until Julian had improved and was back home. Days passed, and I'm sorry to say that he did not recover, but instead discharged himself from hospital, insisting on being back home. When I picked him up, I was greeted by the nurse, who pointed to our family history of cancer, and pleaded for me to help change his mind. There was not much I could say. Cancer had most definitely been ruled out. And so I, too, had little leeway to argue, and was left with nothing to do but drive my stubborn brother home. He had been quietly agitated by finding his home tidier than what he'd left it, and when I returned to his bedside with a cup of coffee, I caught him muttering to himself. Placing the cup down, I was surprised when he grasped my hand with both of his. His eyes locked steely into my own as he asked me exactly what I had touched. I told him what my wife and I had done, and I felt his grip release in relief. He would not speak to me about his time in the hospital, nor would he listen to any reason. Instead, he lay his head down, facing away from the door, and grumbled once more as I left to make lunch. I could no longer in good conscience leave my brother overnight, so I made arrangements to sleep in the spare room. At least until I could convince him to go back to hospital. It all began in earnest that night. I woke at around four in the morning, though I wasn't entirely sure what had broken my sleep. The house was quiet. I looked out the window, and the moon was hidden behind thick clouds, bathing the room in an ethereal glow. The house was far removed from the road, so I could not even blame a passing truck like I could at home. Perturbed, I got out of bed and walked to the door, to see if Julian were awake also. I stood at the open door and listened for him, but heard nothing. I was about to settle myself back down, when I heard footsteps down the hall, sluggish and heavy. Rare though it was for Julian to stand unaided, it did not occur to me that it could be anyone else. Perhaps he had forced himself to go to the toilet or empty his own bedpan. He was a proud man, after all. Then I heard him speak. He spoke in a language I did not recognize, yet somehow I sensed it was ancient. I went to call out, but faltered. Instead, I made my way toward his room without a sound and listened at the door. There was a whispering of sorts coming from within... Julian continued to speak in his unknown tongue, but there was a consistent, breathy, near-voiceless reply. I leaned in to try and hear more, but was betrayed by the creak of a floorboard. Suddenly, all sound from within ceased, and I pushed open the door to make it seem as if I had not been lurking, and instead had come in to check on him. I found Julian standing by the mirror with a look of panic stretched across his pale face. He took a hand to his brow and feigned dizziness, but I was not entirely convinced by his performance. I rushed to him nonetheless, took his arm and shifted his weight onto mine. His other hand was clenched and caught my attention as it glistened in what little light there was. It was wet. I helped him onto bed and Took the hand in mine. He struggled, but his strength failed him. The liquid was sticky, unmistakably blood. I asked him what he'd done. I demanded, even, that he tell me. But he refused and furnished no explanation. There was a large cut across his palm, too neat and precise in its angle to be anything other than self-inflicted. I shook him, angry, but he refused to let me treat his wound in any way other than to clean and bandage it. We had never been a family to speak of emotional matters, but I begged him to tell me what was causing his self-destruction. Without wavering, he told me in plain terms his certainty that he would soon die. He did not entertain my protests or reassurances, and instead interrupted me to repeat his conviction he insisted that I respect his privacy and stressed with great emphasis that he be allowed to finalize his affairs. When pressed, he assured me that all legal matters were settled and he now simply needed to pay homage. Homage to what, he would not clarify. He has not been a God-fearing man, but perhaps his illness had brought with it a newfound spirituality. After all, who knows how any of us will react near the end. I did not sleep again that night. In the morning, I waited until Mrs. Anderson, the help, arrived to bathe Julian before I made out as though I was leaving for work. Instead, I discreetly made my way to my brother's bedroom. The windows had not been opened since his return, and already it smelled of sweat mingled with the unmistakable metallic tinge of blood. I searched the room quietly. Eventually, running a hand under the mattress to discover metal. I grasped it, only to realize it was the hilt of a knife or dagger. When I pulled it out, it was indeed an ornamented knife. From what little I know, self harm would rarely occur across the palm, and any more serious attempts would be at the wrist. Nevertheless, I wrapped the thing in a handkerchief and pocketed it. Julian may be entitled to his privacy, but I would not be an accessory to his mania. Triumphant, I turned to leave the room and saw myself in the mirror once again. I had almost forgotten it was there, but now I laid eyes upon it. It was all I could think of. I approached, spotting dried blood in the creases of the frame, where feeble hands had failed to hide the evidence. The dark smudge I had seen before, although still present, had moved. No longer limiting itself to one side, it now bordered the glass entirely. I became aware of the shapes at the center, this time clearer, more defined. Yes, this time there was very much the outline of a house... My house. I recognized the great ash tree outside. As I blinked, the soft image of the tree split and half fell onto the house. I stared more intently and leaned in, struggling to make out further detail of this burned image, but my efforts only revealed my own reflection. I looked tired, which was understandable, and my tie was crooked. I went to straighten it when I became aware of a tall shadow standing behind my right shoulder. I turned, but was completely alone. I looked back to the mirror, and not only was the shape absent, but so too was the residual image. I collected myself, not so much embarrassed, but more irritated. Tonight... I would confront Julian. I was tired of his games. The weather was foul that day. A meeting at work which would have required us to travel had been called off, and instead I was in the office trying to make the best of a busy conference call. Without a knock, which was unusual, the door opened and my secretary appeared with a grave expression on his face. There had been an emergency at home. Perhaps, looking back, that is a rather dramatic way to put it. But as the weather had escalated into a storm, lightning had struck the tree outside my home and caused it to smash into the master bedroom. Immediately, I was preoccupied with the image I had seen in the mirror. This could not be a coincidence, surely but what logical reason was there? A premonition? Preposterous. There would be time to debate later. I rushed home, more to console my wife than anything. Wooden boards were fitted until a new window could be installed, and my wife planned to stay in our spare room while I saw to my brother. I stayed to clear the mess and made my way to Julian's house much later than I'd planned. I realized now I was punishing him for his transgressions the night before, knowing Mrs. Anderson would not have been able to stay after her shift finished. But he was not an invalid, after all. As I arrived, I was struck by how quiet it was. I called out to my brother, who sharply returned the call from upstairs, demanding to know where I'd been, but more importantly, where I'd put the knife... As I climbed the stairs, I felt the weight of my jacket pocket pat against my side, and I replied that I had no idea what he was on about. Upon opening the door, I found Julian crawling along his bedroom floor, desperately fumbling under his mattress. He was not strong enough to lift it, and he cried out in frustration. He snapped his head toward me, and as we locked eyes I realized he had not called out an aggression but desperation. His face was full of anxiety. I was almost disgusted. Eventually, I stopped toying with him and showed him the wrapped blade. He begged for it. Actually begged for it and implored that I had no idea what I was doing. A pause intervened, and then it all came out. In all seriousness, he explained that day by day... Drop by drop, he had paid homage to someone powerful, someone named Ronove I had not heard the name, but before I had time to chastise or inquire, he went on to speak of demons and the devil. Usually I would not have taken a single word more, but instead I asked him if this had anything to do with the mirror. His affirmation... Was almost hysterical. Renove showed him things in the mirror, he said, but only if treated the right way. And oh, how my brother's fortune had risen, how chance seemed to bend to his will. But the more he conjured the visions, it had taken something from him. His soul was to the mirror what a corpse is to a worm. "'And where was this Renove?' I asked. "'Inside,' came the reply. "'I thought back to the tall shadow "'and realized I had in fact seen the definite shape of something, "'but my mind had refused to register it. "'At that moment, I felt the hairs on the back of my neck stand "'and a now familiar, wordless whisper.' Filled the air. Julian, still on the ground, pleaded for Ronove to accept his most humble apologies. He looked up and snarled that he had done it all for me. He said kind things to me in an angry sort of way, as if he resented me for making him say them. Gradually, a resigned state of calm fell upon my brother. It was time, he said time for him to give himself completely to his master he promised that i would live more comfortably than i could dare to dream but not just for the money he would leave but for serendipity and happiness too i was told that i could not ask for more but more importantly i should not ask for more more whispers came no longer in the air but spilling into my ears and impossible to ignore. The ground seemed to reject me like the lurch one feels when an elevator starts. Over this, Julian shouted, or as near as he could, that he had done all of this for me. But he was sorry. He could not have loved me as a brother should. and instead hoped that he had corrected matters through gesture alone. Then he shuddered and closed his eyes as an invisible horror gripped his heart. He called out in a noise so primal I could hardly believe it was him. He was silent after that. And somehow, I knew he was dead before he slumped to the floor. Through his slow sacrifice... My brother had promised to provide, and it seemed the final offering had just been accepted. I turned to the mirror, now drawn to it. The whispers, now in my mind, became clear, foreign words. Languages that were old when Egypt was young. And I understood them. Promises were being made. Deals were being bartered. Before I could change my mind, I approached the mirror. Step by step, I felt myself become something less, but found it bearable all the same. I had been warned not to ask for more, and yet it seemed that there was so much more to be had. I watched myself unwrap the blade and hold it tightly in my palm. With my other, I withdrew it sharply and then dropped it. My hand opened and closed to increase the flow, and I smeared it against the glass. The very ground tried to stop what was happening, but it was too late fingers appeared from under the glass, like a hand underwater. Long and black, they gripped the frame of the mirror and squeezed as they pulled the weight forward. Welcome, Renove, Great Earl of Hell.
0: In our final tale, we meet a woman whose best friend and roommate, Emily, has encountered a terrible fate. She's fallen into a coma, suddenly and unexpectedly. A long sleep, you could call it. But in this tale, shared with us by author Corinne Laranaga, it's not Emily who's most affected by tiredness. It's her friend. You see, every time she's tired, she sees Emily all around. Performing this tale are Jessica McAvoy, Nicole Doolin, Addison Peacock, and Mary Murphy. So try to stay awake, because if you fall asleep, then you might just find out why Emily needs you. And sometimes it can be dangerous to help a friend in need.
1: The impossibility exhausted me. She couldn't be there, but in defiance of all logic, Emily lurked in the corner of the classroom, trying to catch my eye from behind Dr. Radcliffe's desk. It took effort to ignore her, to block out the stare that burned into my forehead in a way it had never done while she was still awake. I refused to look choosing instead to focus on the half-empty can of super energy blast at the edge of my desk. She's not here. She's not here. The repeated mantra didn't do any good. Emily remained, her brown eyes wide and unblinking, same as she'd done for the past week. No matter where I was, no matter what time of day, if I got tired enough, she'd be there chugging energy drinks bought me a couple sleepless days and nights of peace but the caffeine crash loomed right around the corner the fatigue pressed down on me like a weight god i wanted to close my eyes close them for a minute and rest
9: still with us annie
1: my eyelids snapped open at the sound of dr radcliffe's voice she frowned at me from beside the blackboard. Sorry. <clears throat> I cleared my throat and stretched in my seat, then grabbed my pen and tried to copy the chart Dr. Radcliffe had written while I'd been dozing. I welcomed the distraction from Emily's gaze, and I took care to write my notes, including more details than I'd ever done in four years of college.
9: As you can see, the grading is very straightforward. If you get your senior projects in on time, follow the formatting guidelines, and stay on topic, there's no reason you won't pass. See me during my office hours if you have additional questions. Class
1: dismissed. There was a loud scraping of chairs as the other students in my advisory group packed up their things and left the classroom. I stuffed my notebook into my messenger bag, hoping to sneak out while Dr. Radcliffe erased the board but when I raised my head, she was already standing at my desk. Do you have a minute? Sure. I tried to make it sound casual, like I had no idea what she wanted to talk to me about, but the spike in my voice betrayed me. Dr. Radcliffe half-sat on the desk across from mine and looked at me for a few silent moments. I ran my hands over my head and straightened my ponytail, hoping I didn't look as disheveled as I felt. I showered at least twice a day in my bid to stay awake, but my old routine of straightening my hair and picking fun, layered outfits had long since fallen to the wayside in favor of hair ties and whatever t-shirt smelled cleanest. At last, she spoke, tilting her head toward my energy drink. Doesn't seem to be working.
9: No, not really. Listen, I know you've got a lot of finals to study for. And I can't imagine what you must be going through since Emily. Well, I'm extending the deadline on your senior project. Why don't you take summer semester to wrap it up?
1: I shook my head. You don't need to do that for me. I'm fine. I really think you should... It could make- No. The booming volume of my voice surprised me. I lowered it to explain myself. I appreciate your concern, but I don't want to delay my graduation. Another semester here would do me in. I couldn't take the stares from my classmates, the pity from my professors. Emily was the one who'd gotten sick, not me. She was the one who wouldn't wake up, but nobody was trying to help her. They all seemed focused on me. I didn't get it. I wasn't Emily's only roommate. I wasn't even the one who'd found her and called the paramedics. I wondered if Zuri's professors offered to extend deadlines or waive assignments. Knowing Zuri, probably not. I'll have my project to you next week same as everybody else. I zipped my backpack and stood. I felt Dr. Radcliffe's eyes following me out of the classroom, but I didn't turn around. Her gaze was a hell of a lot easier to ignore than Emily's. A vicious funk greeted me when I opened the door to our apartment. I glanced at the Jenga tower of dishes piled in the sink, thought about washing them, and opted to open a window and air the place out instead. Cleaning was one of the many things I'd avoided since the paramedics had wheeled Emily away, and Zuri was too busy with student council activities to care that I wasn't pulling my weight. That... Or maybe she took the same kind of pity on me as everyone else and just wasn't bitching at me about it. I shoved an empty pizza box off the couch and stretched out across the soft cushions. It was easier to ignore Emily out here than in our bedroom. In there, she stared at me from hundreds of selfies and group photos we'd taken together over the last four years. Out here... She only stared at me from the corner where Zuri kept her yoga mat. Hey, Emily, I know you're a figment of my imagination, but I'd still appreciate it if you'd let me squeeze in a nap before Chemlab. She mouthed something in return, but I couldn't hear it. I could never hear it. The words were probably random song lyrics or something else my brain was too worn out to process in any healthy way. Maybe after graduation, when there was more space in my head, I'd finally figure it out. A light hum filled my ears. I felt the forceful tug of sleep on my eyelids. My body, impatient for rest, deep quality rest, tugged me deeper into the cushions. I closed my eyes and hovered briefly on the edge between consciousness and nothingness. Annie! (sighs) Emily's voice slapped the buzz of sleepiness from my mind. It'd been exactly 28 days since I'd last heard it. When I opened my eyes, she wasn't skulking in the corner anymore. She kneeled beside the couch, eyes frantic and cheeks flushed. I scrambled to sit up and backed away from her, pulling my knees to my chest and trying to retreat as far back into the cushions as possible. I trained my eyes on the ceiling fan and whispered my mantra. She's not here. She's not here. Annie, I'm here. She's not here. Not here. I shook my head and pinched my arms and legs. Wake up. Look at me, man. I hated that nickname. Emily only used it when she was trying to nettle me. Out of sheer reflex, I turned my head and shot her a glare. Her eyes went wide, and words, finally audible after so long, spilled out of her mouth at light speed.
2: Listen, you're awake, and I'm here.
1: She glanced down at her chest which was translucent enough that I could see the pile of unwashed clothes behind her.
2: Or I guess part of me is. My body's still in the hospital, but I hate it there, Annie. Please help me come home.
1: I stared at her, really looking for the first time in weeks. Is it really you? She tried to grab for my hand, but she passed right through my body.
2: Yes, it's me. I've been trying to talk to you for days.
1: A tear rolled down her cheek.
2: I can't believe you can actually hear me.
1: My brain imitated my car's engine in the dead of winter, half starting and then choking out. Again and again, I turned the keys trying to process what the hell was going on here. Emily, in our living room, talking to me. But it couldn't be real. She couldn't be real. I'd seen her the day before in her hospital room, tubes and wires coming out of her throat and arms. She'd been skinnier there, thinner than she looked now, with limp, stringy hair and skin the color of ash. You're not here. You're in a coma. You're sick. I'm not sick! She reached for me again, then seemed to remember that she couldn't touch me and dragged her hand down her face instead.
2: That's why I need to get out of there. The doctors will never be able to help me. It's not an infection or a fever.
1: I'd never seen that desperate look in her eyes before. Even when she'd been stressed or sad... There'd always been a light, a hint of a smile waiting to be coaxed out by a good joke. I'd never imagined she could look so frightened, my chest constricted. This was something I hadn't imagined. This was real. Emily, my best friend, my confidant, the person who'd gotten me through every failed test and bad breakup... Sat here, translucent, asking for my help. I straightened up. Okay, if you're not sick, why are you in a coma? It was a demon. A demon. Under different circumstances, I would have laughed. On a normal day... Emily might have been rehearsing for an audition or playing a practical joke, but I didn't think Emily would have stalked me like a living ghost for the past week just to prank me. So I had to take anything she told me at face value, which means I realized that she's talking about an honest to God, actual demon. I struggled for words. I don't... I don't know how I can help with that. Emily's face was still flushed, but now that I'd agreed she was, in fact, somehow visiting me from the confines of her hospital bed, her pupils had grown still, and she looked less like a desperate addict jonesing for her next fix.
2: There's a book in my desk. Get it. The last page has everything you need to know.
1: Okay, I'll be right back. As much as I loved Emily, my self-preservation instincts wouldn't let me stand up, walk by her, and then turn my back to her to go down the hall. Instead, I climbed over the back of the couch like a weirdo and shuffled out of the room in reverse, not turning around until I entered our bedroom and closed the door. As I'd expected, the wall of selfies assaulted me. I froze, staring at them. Emily was everywhere, smiling, laughing, sharing her brilliant light with the world. I didn't want that light to go out forever. I balled my hands into fists and marched across the room, letting hundreds of pairs of brown eyes follow me to Emily's desk. I hadn't touched so much as a pencil on it since she'd gotten sick. No, since she'd been taken. But now I rifled through every stack of paper, upended every drawer in search of whatever book she'd been talking about. The only books I'd found were textbooks, and the last pages of those were appendixes and glossaries. Nothing in them suggested, Hey, I can help with this demon problem. Damn it! I banged my fists on the desk, and something landed on my foot. A small brown book that barely filled my hand when I picked it up. I ran my thumb down the empty spine. There was no title, no markings at all. Just smooth, faded leather. I pulled back on the pages and let them flip past me. Neat, cramped handwriting filled each page journal. I knew it wasn't Emily's. She always said journaling was too much work, but she kept a diary in her own way. She had accounts on every kind of social media and busily photographed and posted the most mundane details of her daily life, especially if she encountered a stray animal or a particularly cute cup of coffee. Plus, her handwriting was a loopy, messy, half-cursive that was a headache to read. Whoever wrote this clearly took extra effort to make sure it was legible. It looked like it could have been typed, except for variations in print size and the occasional ink blot. The book was short, and it didn't take long to flip to the end. A perfect circle filled with odd shapes and symbols took up the entire last page. Most of it didn't make any sense to me, but a few looked like stick figures and stars. Below the circle there was a drawing of a single lit candle, beside which were thick block letters spelling transient intenebrae. Still examining that final page, I opened the bedroom door and went back to the couch. Where the hell did you get this? There was no answer, and Emily was gone when I raised my head. I sighed. Searching her desk had gotten me so keyed up I could have run a marathon. I was more awake than I'd been in almost a month, and she only appeared when I was beat. I'd have to wait until the high of excitement wore off. The stink from the kitchen sink wafted over to me, pulled by the breeze from the open window. Might as well wear myself out. I turned on the faucet. This is a nice surprise. Zuri stood in the doorway with her hands on her hips and surveyed the apartment.
4: No dishes in the sink, and I can actually see the floor?
1: I aim to please. I lay stretched out on the sofa, taking up all three cushions beneath my softest fleece blanket. I'd put the little brown book in my pillowcase for safekeeping. I could feel the ridge of it through the stuffing in my pillow. She crossed the room to perch on the arm of the couch, took the mug out of my hand, and sniffed it.
4: Chamomile? Did you finally sell your stock in super energy blast? Just trying to relax.
1: In truth, I was trying to bring myself back to the brink of falling asleep. The tea, the blanket the home shopping channel that played on the TV, they were all part of a strategy that didn't seem to be working. Had I known this whole time that wanting to fall asleep was the secret to staying awake, I would have saved a fortune on energy drinks. I'm glad. Zuri's voice was soft, and she reached down to squeeze my foot.
4: I haven't wanted to say anything, but I've been worried about you.
1: I clenched my jaw and said nothing, despite the torrent of angry responses that flooded my mind. Zuri, like everyone else, was more worried about me than Emily. Like everyone else, she professed concern, but didn't do much more than talk about it. But if I told her how I felt, we'd get into an argument, and the adrenaline would keep me awake. So I lay there, Staring at a spinning silver bracelet on the television screen and kept quiet. She sighed and set the mug down on the coffee table. I know you think it's pity or something, but it's not.
4: I miss you, Annie. You've been different since Emily got sick.
1: She didn't get sick. I couldn't help it. The words leaped from my mouth. She was taken.
4: What are you talking about?
1: Nothing. She slid off the armrest and rounded the couch to kneel in front of me. Her eyebrows were drawn together so tightly that, for a second, I thought she was angry. But when she spoke, her voice was as gentle as always. Okay, tough talk time.
4: I've been trying to figure out how to have this conversation with you for weeks but I couldn't find the right words. Well, screw the right words, Annie. You need help.
1: I narrowed my eyes at her. Help?
4: You're not processing what happened to Emily in a healthy way. There are
1: grief counselors. Grief? She's not dead.
4: Well, she might as well be.
1: For the first time in the four years I'd known her, Zuri raised her voice to a near shriek. She grabbed one of my hands in both of hers, and her eyes filled with tears. "'Don't you get it? She's probably
4: never going to wake up. Every day she's in that coma, it's less and less likely she'll come back to us. We have to let go.'
1: I yanked my hand out of her grasp. "'Let go? How can you say that?' She's our friend! She
4: was our friend. That's what I'm saying. Since the moment the paramedics wheeled her out of here, she's been gone. Can't you feel it? Feel what? She used to fill this whole place with light and energy.
1: Zuri looked around the room with flat, sad eyes. I can't feel her here anymore. Maybe you can't, but I can. I've seen her. Would she believe me if I told her Emily had been kneeling in exactly the same spot Zuri now sat just hours earlier? I've talked to her. Oh, Annie. She sat back on her heels and let her hands fall into her lap.
4: Why didn't you tell me it's
1: gotten this bad? When could I have told you? You're never home. She pursed her lips. For a minute, I thought it was over, that I'd won this argument. It was a good thing, too, because I was starting to shake, and I knew I'd already undone all the work I'd put into relaxing. I'm sorry.
4: It's hard being home. You weren't here when I found her. You get to remember her the way she was at breakfast, happy and bubbly. But every time I walk into this room, I see it all over again. The furniture was everywhere. Even the rug was rumpled up by the TV, and she was just laying there.
1: She pointed to the space in front of the fireplace.
4: It looked like she was sleeping. But when I checked for her pulse, there wasn't one. I thought she was dead. I can't remember calling 911, but I remember sitting here with her cold, still hand in mine.
1: I stared at her. She'd never talked about it before. Not like this. To be honest, I hadn't been able to bring myself to ask. I didn't want to think about it. It was bad enough that Emily was unconscious in a hospital bed, Without dwelling on what put her there, Zuri was right. I was lucky. I didn't envy that memory. Maybe Emily was lucky too. Lucky I wasn't there and wasn't haunted by what I'd seen. I was able to be here, to see her. I considered telling Zuri what I'd found and including her in the plan to bring Emily back but her red-rimmed eyes and slumped shoulders made me suspect she needed sleep even more than I did. Guilt twisted my stomach. I'd been so wrapped up in my own sadness that I hadn't been paying attention to hers. Can I get you anything? Want some of this tea? There's only one thing I want. I want you to get help.
4: I want you to be able to move on.
1: Okay. Compared to what I faced with Emily, Zuri's request was nothing. I'm guessing you already have the name of somebody you want me to see, right? I'll call them tomorrow and make an appointment. Zuri's eyes widened. Really? Really. She jumped forward, pulled me into a tight hug, and whispered in my ear. Thank you. Why don't you go lie down or something? She pulled away from me and shook her head. I've
4: got to plan a meeting for the
1: graduation concert. It's going to be really
4: nice. They're going to dedicate a song to Emily.
1: She ran the middle finger of each hand under her eyes brushing away gray lines of running mascara.
4: I'm gonna splash some water on my face and head back
1: to campus. While she cleaned up in the bathroom, I snuggled back down into the blanket and yawned. If she was that happy getting me to agree to see a counselor, I couldn't wait to see her face when Emily woke up. After Zuri left and the sun began to set, I felt the familiar weight of sleepiness pressing down on me. I blinked, and when I opened my eyes, Emily stood in front of the fireplace. She was more translucent than before, and I could see every detail of the picture frames behind her. I found the book. Her eyes lit up.
2: I knew you would.
1: I sat up and leaned forward, with my elbows on my knees. So, how does this work? I read the words, and you wake up? She shook her head.
2: I wish it were that easy. You need to stand in the circle, hold the candle, and speak the words. That will connect us, so you can pull me out of the darkness.
1: The darkness?
2: I don't know how else to describe it. It's where he's keeping me. It's so dark here. So empty. I want to come home.
1: I wanted to jump up and hug her, then remembered I couldn't. It's okay, Em. I'm coming for you. Please hurry. Her form flickered, fading like a candle about to go out. It's been nearly a month.
2: I don't have much longer.
1: What happens when... She disappeared before I could finish my question. Shit! I dived to the side and retrieved the book from my pillowcase. The circle filled with odd symbols waited for me on the last page, but it was barely four inches tall. Emily said I should stand inside it. I needed to draw a much larger version plus find a candle somewhere. Swearing under my breath, I dashed into the kitchen and started rummaging through our junk drawer. There, among the rubber bands and spare charging cables, I found a candle shaped like the number two left over from Emily's 22nd birthday a few months before, along with a small box of matches. Aha! At the back of the drawer... My hand closed around a cold metal tube. It was a giant black magic marker, the kind Zuri used to make posters for student council events. I had everything I needed, except somewhere to draw the circle. I crossed back into the living room, twisting the marker between my fingers and racking my brain for something I could draw on. Regular paper was too small. Zuri might have some poster board in her room, Or I could check the dumpster for an old cardboard box. Or to hell with it. I could draw on the floor. We'd lose our deposit when we moved out after graduation. Maybe I could cover it with the rug. It wasn't even a rug, really. It was a thin piece of carpet the previous tenants left behind. I lifted the edge and saw a curved line delicately carved into the scuffed hardwood beneath the rug. It looked like a piece of a circle. I dropped the corner back down with a slap, dragged the coffee table out of the way, and pulled the rug over the back of the couch to fully expose the floor. I was right. It was a circle. The carving was faded, but some parts stood out clearly, especially in the lower traffic areas where the coffee table normally sat. There... I could easily make out a figure encased in a star that matched the last page in Emily's book. Did she draw this? I bent down and ran my thumb along the edge of the design, feeling the smoothness of the floor that was barely marred by the shallow carving. It seemed old, like years of feet walking on top of it had sanded down the ridges and made the lines less severe. No, she hadn't carved it, but maybe she used it. I stood and walked forward, wondering how many of her steps I was retracing. The instant my feet hit the center of the circle, the little hairs on the back of my neck twitched. I was close to something powerful. I suddenly wanted to leave the apartment, find Zuri at her meeting, and never return. I certainly didn't want to light the candle that threatened to slip out of my sweaty fingers, and the thought of speaking those foreign words made bile rise up in my throat. But when I closed my eyes, I saw Emily's fading figure and heard her plea for help.
2: It's so dark here, so empty. I want to come home.
1: She was depending on me. She'd stood by me for four years. Four years of roller coaster emotions, insane workloads, and living on a shoestring and the hopes we'd have a better future. Now all she needed from me was one thing. One small thing, really. To swallow my fear and stick to the plan so she could have that future. I gulped down the stomach acid, struck a match and lit the candle. Holding it above my head, I spoke the words from the book. Transiate in tenebrae. When my mouth closed over the final symbol, the candle blew out and the lights went dark above me. The room was lit only by the full moon shining through the open window. As I blinked, it began to fade, until I stood in a blackness so complete that I couldn't make out my own hand in front of my face. Emily? My voice was strangely muffled, as though I was talking through a pillow. Are you here? No reply. I wanted to vomit, faint, and run away all at the same time. Just as I was deciding that option number two was the best choice out of those three, a glowing orb appeared in my peripheral vision. It was moving, growing larger, or coming closer. It was hard to tell which. Soon, the light of the orb filled my entire field of vision, And what I saw inside made my heart swell. Emily! She lay on the floor of the orb, curled up in a fetal position. Unlike when she'd appeared to me earlier that day, this version of her looked like the one that lay in the hospital bed. Thin, wasted, her normally curly hair matted against her forehead. Emily, I'm here! She opened her eyes and lifted her head, squinting at me from inside the glowing ball.
2: Annie? Is that you?
1: Come on. I'm taking you home. I reached forward to grab her hand and yank her out of her prison. As my fingers neared the edge of the glowing light, Emily's eyes widened. But it was too late to stop my momentum. I touched the orb and it exploded, blinding me with a flash of lightning and deafening me with a roar of thunder. My legs buckled beneath me, and I let out a cry of pain, echoed by Emily's Annie. screaming. Annie, no. The light faded. Annie. Faded. Faded. Into nothing. didn't have long soon I knew she'd become like the dozens of other husks in the orb with us they'd been people once now they looked like set pieces from a horror film about a mummy's tomb I'd spent days pounding at the glowing haze that surrounded us it looked like little more than smoke but was as solid as steel I was too weak for that now too weak to fight. Instead, I sat on the floor of the orb and stroked Emily's hair, listening to her ragged breathing. Through the haze, I could make out Zuri sitting on the couch in our living room. She hugged a pillow to her chest and cried, her tears spilling onto my fleece blanket. My heart ached for her, for all of us, but there was nothing I could do. The demon had already taken my form, following Zuri and haunting her at her most exhausted. Soon enough, she'd find the book, and she'd already seen the carving. Twice. Emily was too weak to answer my questions, and I wondered what form the demon had taken to lure her here. Knowing her... It could have been anything from a scared puppy to a perfect stranger who needed help. No wonder she'd been the first to go. And soon, she really would be gone. I'd sit here, alone, until Zuri fell for the demon's tricks. At least then, I'd have someone to stroke my hair while I withered away in the darkness. (laughs) you <laughs>
0: Spells are wearing off for now, but the magic will linger. The shop will be open again next week with more spells to enchant you. Visit Podcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this production. And on their behalf, we thank you for being a supportive, sleepless member.